We've been asking that question for the past month and praying through that very thought. Who is your one? Who is that person in your life who God has placed you in their life so that you might be the light of the gospel, so that you might point them to Jesus Christ? And in that thought, along those lines of sharing our faith, we've talked about why we must share our faith. We must share our faith because Jesus is the only way to salvation. We must share our faith because hell is real and those who die apart from Christ will spend eternity in hell. We share our faith because heaven is real and those who receive Christ will get to spend eternity in heaven with God. Well, today I want us to consider how we can reach our one. I hope and pray that God has laid on your heart someone and if he hasn't, I hope that you would continue to pray that God would lay on your heart someone who you might point toward Jesus But I want to give you some practical ways today, things that we can do every single day, every single week, in in order to prepare our hearts to be used by God to reach our one. First thing I want to share with you this morning is that to reach your one, you got to pray. You must pray. I want to pause right at the beginning of this sermon today and, and, and ask you to consider this question. As a believer in Christ, when was the last time that you are genuinely broken over the lostness of someone that you know? I mean, when was the last time that you shed tears, that your heart was aching and broken over the fact that someone that you know is apart from Christ, and if their life ended today, they would spend eternity in hell? When was the last time that you were broken over the state of our nation? Not just the evil that we see, not just the corruption that we see, not just the problems that we see, but the lostness that we see. The fact that we are a nation that is apart from Christ, so it seems. When was the last time that you truly called out to the Lord for the salvation of someone that you know? When was the last time you genuinely prayed for people to come to Christ? I mean, we say that we believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. We say that we believe that the lost are dying and going to hell. We say that we believe in the power of prayer to change things. But if we believe all those things, we need to put all that together and realize that we must fall on our knees every single day and pray for the lost. Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Paul writes this. He's talking about his Jewish brothers and sisters, and he says, Brothers, my heart's desire, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for the Israelites, is that they may be saved. If you read all through Paul's letters, you'll see he was a man of prayer. He was a man who prayed for the church. He prayed for the lost. And we must have that same commitment to pray for the lost every day. There was a pastor in England back in the 17th century by the name of Richard Baxter. And this is what he wrote about this whole subject of praying for the lost. He said, oh, if you have the heart of Christians in you, let them yearn towards your poor ungodly neighbors. Alas, there is but a step between them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting ready to seize on them, and if they die unsaved, they are lost forever. Have you you hearts of rock that cannot pity the lost? We must pray for the lost. And reaching our one, I believe, begins with prayer. We must pray that their hearts would be fertile ground. Do you remember that, that parable that Jesus told, the parable of the soils? where he talks about how there were the, the, the farmer cast the seed out and the, the seed fell on the four different kinds of soil. And the only one in which the seed took root and produced fruit and showed life was that last one, the fertile soil, right? We must pray 
That those that we know who are lost, that their hearts will become fertile soil so that when they hear the gospel, it would take root and produce salvation. And we must pray for ourselves and for others that we would have opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Luke chapter 10, verse 2, Jesus said this. You probably know this verse. He said, he said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There, there is much harvest out there to be had, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so we ought to be praying for the lost, that their hearts would be ready, and we ought to be praying for the saved, that we would be ready to take the opportunities that God places in front of us to share our faith, to tell others about Jesus. We must pray. And here's especially why I think prayer is important when it comes to um, this idea of evangelism. Um, sometimes when it comes to the thoughts of sharing our faith with our neighbors, with our friends, with our, especially with our family, we grow nervous, we grow anxious, we think, I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know what I'm going to say. What if they get mad at me? This is going to make the relationship kind of awkward if they, if they say no to this. You, you know what I'm saying? Have you been there? Have you felt that before? You're afraid of what's going to happen. Let me tell you what prayer does. Prayer reminds me that I don't save people. God does. It reminds me that I'm relying upon God to do the saving. And anything that I pray for, every single thing that I ever pray for, prayer reminds me I'm not in control. God is. And I'm reliant upon Him to act in whatever that situation is that I'm praying over. And so when I pray for the lost, I'm reminding myself that it's God that does the work in that person's life. And I'm asking Him to do the miraculous work of saving them, not me. And so prayer relieves the pressure from my shoulders and reminds me that this is God's work. Now, does God use us to bring lost people to Jesus? Yes, He absolutely does. But the results are not in my hands. I must simply be ready and willing. I mean, let's just take, take for instance, that, that verse that we just read. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in His harvest. Let's think about this whole analogy of farming here. Who is the Lord of the harvest? God in heaven, right? Okay, now when a farmer plants a crop, or let's say you had a garden in your yard and you went out and planted a garden, can you make those things grow? No. Now you can do all kinds of things to try to promote growth to take place, right? You plant them in the right spot. You water if, it, if, if there's a drought. You do everything to prepare the soil, to fertilize, all those kind of things. You can do all that kind of stuff, but you can't make it grow. You are reliant upon God, uh, upon God to do the work to make it grow. You can't control the sun. You can't control the clouds. You can't control the rain. You can't control that seed. You simply cast the seed, do what you can, and rely upon the Lord to do something. Luke 10.2 reminds us that God is the Lord of the harvest. He is the one that brings about the harvest. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so when I pray, I am reminding myself, I don't save people. Does God want to use me? Does He use my words? Absolutely, but it's not, it's not a performance for me. 
I'm praying, God, make me willing and make me obedient and help their, them to be ready. Do I plant the seed? Yes, but I'm praying for God to bring growth in the seed. And so we must pray. We must pray that God would do the work that we read about in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, when the Lord says that He will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. The Lord changes a person's heart. We must pray for that to happen. Number one, we must pray. Number two, we must invest. If we want to reach our one, we have to invest in that person. We must invest in their lives. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, in the Great Commission. You remember it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Remember that passage? Now, if you were to go back to the Greek, what you would find is that word go, it really is saying, as you are going, make disciples. It's saying that, that leading people to Christ is something that we do as a part of our everyday lives. As we walk through our everyday routines and go about our normal business, we ought to be looking for those opportunities that God places in front of us to make disciples. And what that means then is our life is a mission field. That our regular everyday lives are mission fields. We go on mission trips and that's good, but guess what? Your life is a mission trip. Your home is a mission field. Your workplace is a mission field. Your kids' soccer team and basketball team and baseball team and the time you spend sitting in the bleachers watching them play, that's a mission field. That's all a mission field. Everything we do, but we must treat it as such. And I say that because leading people to Christ doesn't happen by accident. It happens because you chose to invest in their life with the gospel. It happens because you chose to take your time and your resources and your energy, turn them over to God and invest them in someone else. If you want to reach your one, you must invest in their life. Show them that you care. Spend time with them. Invite them to come over. Share a meal. Do something at, together. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 14, it says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, in order, in order for people to see the light shining within you, you must live life with them. You must share time with them. You must invest in them. And in those relationships, I do believe, and I know from my own life, that it's in those relationships you begin to get to know that person. You begin to know their struggles, to hear their story, to understand their hardships. And I believe those open up doors so that you can share with them how Jesus changed your life and how Jesus met your needs. Number one, we must pray. Number two, we must invest. Number three, we must Share. We must share. I heard a quote a while back. Um, it's oftentimes attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, who lived back in the late 1100s. And it's, it goes like this. Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Maybe you've heard that before. Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. 
Um, well, actually, St. Francis didn't really say that. Um, and when I heard that quote, I thought, oh, that sounds pretty good. And then I thought about it a little more, and I, and I get what they're trying to say. Whoever made that quote up and then attributed it to him, I get what he's trying to say. He was trying to say, you know, we ought to live the gospel in front of people, that we need to live in such a way that they, they know what Jesus would have done. They see the life of Jesus in us. But there's a problem with that idea. The gospel requires words. It requires us to tell people about Jesus. You know, what I have seen from my own life, and I know others have told me the same thing, is that you can live a tremendously generous and kind life. You can be the best neighbor in the world. You can do all sorts of nice things for other people. You can cook them meals. You can invite them to supper. You can fix their, their mower. You can do all this kind of stuff and be just the nicest person in the world. But if that person never hears you talk about Jesus... They're never going to come to Jesus. If all they see are your good works, they're going to look and say, that's just a good person. That's a really nice person. At some point, you have to move from simply doing good works to speaking about the one who changed your life. You cannot just pray and invest in someone's life and stop there. We must share the gospel with them. We must move to words and tell them about the light of the world. We must be the light in front of them, but then we must tell them about the light. Jesus Christ. We cannot leave it up to chance. We cannot just hope, oh, I, they'll figure this out. They'll see there's something different to me. And then they're going to come up and ask me, what makes you so different? You know what? I've never been asked that in my life. I never have. And I, and I think I'm a good neighbor. I think I'm a nice person. But no one's ever come up to me and said, man, why are you so nice? No. We have to be the ones who share. At the end of the day, people come to Jesus not because of our good works, but because of the good news of the gospel. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's how people are saved. And so we must share. Now, sometimes we worry about timing. We say, oh, I just don't know when the right time is to bring that up. I don't know. I don't want to say it at the wrong time. I, I, you know, and, and we get worried about all those kind of things. And we pray for God to give us opportunities and then when we pray for God to give us opportunities, we expect like this miraculous moment where the clouds are going to part and a light is going to shine down on that person and you're going to say, oh, that's the, uh, now it's my time, you know? And then we wonder what's happening. There's a pastor in North Carolina named Tony Morita, and he said this. He said, if you're waiting for the perfect moment to tell an unbeliever that he's condemned to hell before an all-holy God, you're never going to say anything because there's not going to be a perfect moment. Donald Whitney, who wrote um, a great book on spiritual disciplines, said that those perfect moments, they just don't happen. He said, you have to discipline yourself to ask your neighbor how you can pray for them and when you can share a meal with them. You have to discipline yourself to get with your coworkers during off hours. Many such opportunities for evangelism will never take place if you wait for them to occur spontaneously. We must be the ones who actively try to share the good news with them. We must tell them how they can be saved. We must tell them how God has saved us, how he changed our life. I mean, let's just think about that for a minute. This idea of sharing your personal testimony, I believe it's a tremendous tool for bringing people to Jesus. Flip over to Acts chapter 26. And let's just look at the example of the Apostle Paul. 
Paul comes to Christ back in Acts chapter 9. You remember the Damascus Road experience? If you've read the Bible, you, you would likely know that. Paul was on the road. He was a persecutor of the church. He was trying to arrest and, and persecute Christians. And on his road, on the Damascus Road, the Lord Jesus appears to him in a bright light, um, and he comes to Christ in that moment. He is saved in that moment. Just a dramatic salvation experience. Um, and at least two other times in the Bible, in Acts, and then you kind of catch little bits and pieces of it in, in the rest of his letters, um, Paul shares his testimony. He shares his story of how he came to Jesus. Um, and so in both of those situations in Acts, in Acts chapter 22 and in chapter 26, he follows kind of a similar outline for sharing his testimony. And I think it's an outline that we can follow in sharing our testimony with others. And this is how he does it. He's on trial before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, and he begins by telling about his life before he found Christ. Acts 26 verse 4, Paul says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And then skip down to verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And so he talks about what his life was like before Jesus. You can do the same thing. You can share with someone what was your life like before you met the Lord in salvation. That's how you, share, that's how you begin your testimony. Second thing he does is he talks about his conversion experience. He talks about um, that, that time whenever he came to Christ, whenever he, he, he experienced salvation. In verse 12, he says, In this connection... I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when, he, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those to which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness into light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so he talked about that salvation experience when he came to know the Lord. And then, and then the third thing that he does is he then tells about his life after receiving Christ. He tells what happens to him after he came to know the Lord, the change that took place. Verse 19, it says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have helped, 
I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And so he tells about his life before the Lord, before his salvation. He tells about his salvation experience. And then he tells about how his life is changed because of Jesus. You can do the same thing. You can share your story. And you know the great thing about that is there's nothing to memorize because it's your story. You already know it. You know what your life was like before you came to Jesus. You know what you were like in your lost state. You know what you probably most likely remember when it was that you came to hear the gospel and how it, when it suddenly clicked in your mind that this is true and that you needed a Savior and you needed the Lord's forgiveness. And you, you, you remember that moment. And you, you know, if you'll sit down and think about it, you can, you can know and you can say, this is how my life has changed because of what Jesus did in my life. That's your testimony. Let me tell you what you need to remember about sharing your story. A, you have a story to tell. You do. Now, if you were a Christian, you have a story that is worth telling. Now, some of you are thinking exactly what I thought for so long. My story is boring. <laughs> My story is not as dramatic. You know, I don't have that Paul story. Um, you know, I don't have that Damascus Road instance. I don't have this story where I was just a, a, a gutter drunk and I, my life was just a mess and I was on drugs and I did all these kind of things and then the Lord saved me. You know, we've all heard those stories and those stories are great, you know, and praise the Lord for those stories. Um, and, but for those of us who don't have that story, we can hear those things and we can begin to think, well, my story's boring. No one wants to listen to me. No one wants to listen to me talk about how I, was, how I had a drug problem when I was a kid. I was drugged to church, right? Um, I mean, it sounds boring, but, you know, here's the thing. I don't care what your story is. Every salvation story is a story of God's grace, and that is powerful. That is powerful. And so at my pastor, when I was a teenager, um, I still remember the very first youth retreat I ever went on um, when I got into youth group. Uh, we went to a place called Victory Valley. I don't even know where. It's somewhere in Shelby County. I don't know where it was, but it was some little campground out in Shelby County. I think it was out in Fraser or something. And uh, we went out there for a youth retreat, and we were talking about this very thing. Um, and he talked about how my pastor at the time, Danny Sinkfield, still at Faith, he talked about how, you know, he said, sometimes you can look at your story like that, and you can think that that's a boring story, that there's nothing there, that people won't really be affected by it. And he said, you know what, maybe it's that your story is that God protected you from all those things growing up, that God placed you on a path that kept you from wandering into those things. Um, every story is a story of God's grace. I think about last week when we had our deacon ordination. I, I know some of you weren't able to be here, but... We had two men who were ordained as deacons, Charles Hartness and Nick Ritchie. Um, and they got up and they shared their testimonies last Sunday night. And one got up and shared a story about how he came from an abusive, had an abusive father and an abusive stepfather. He, he came out of a situation where he was raised in a cult, basically, a heretical church. And he was saved out of that. It was a dramatic story of God's grace and God's love. A powerful story of salvation. Praise God for that. The other guy got up and he began to share about how he grew up in church and how he had gone through his life and, and, and how God had begun to work on him and God had saved him. That was a powerful story. 
of God's grace. You have a story to tell. It may not sound spectacular by human standards, but it's a story worth sharing. And secondly, I would say this is that your story can point other people to Jesus. God gave you your story so that you can share that story and point other people to Jesus. The things about your story, you never know how people might identify with it. You never know how there might be something in your history and something in your life that someone else can say, hey, that was me too. I was in that same situation. I went through that same thing. And that, those things may point them right to Jesus. See, I would say this, that sharing your story can lead into sharing the gospel. And I would say it needs to lead into sharing the gospel. You know, as we're telling people about how Christ has changed our lives, we ought to then move into telling them about how Jesus can change their life. You see, my story can point people to Jesus, but it's the story of Jesus that saves people. It's not my story that saves people. It's the story of Jesus. And so we must share the gospel. And that doesn't have to be complicated. You know, sometimes we think about evangelism and we get nervous. We get scared and we think, that's just, there's so much to it. Turning your Bible to John 3.16. I want to show you very quickly how if you can read John 3.16, you can share the gospel. All you got to do is read and explain. You can share the gospel. And I'm going to do this very quickly. But I promise you, you can do this. One verse of Scripture can be enough. God, we can share multiple Scripture, and that's good. That's great. You know, uh, many of you probably have memorized the Romans Road, and that's what I use quite often. Um, but sometimes in, in, in the moment, you know, when you only got time to share something really brief, this is a good place to start. John 3.16. We've all known it. If you grew up, grew up in the church, you've read this verse before. You've probably memorized it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That is the gospel in a verse, is it not? That is the gospel in a verse. You can lead someone to Christ with that. For God. Who is God? The creator, the maker of heaven and earth. You can look at someone and say, don't you believe that there's a God in heaven? Don't you see all this order, all this creation, all this universe and realize there must be a God who created this all? Even if you're talking to someone who believes in evolution, which I don't, but even if, let's say, you're talking to someone who believes in evolution, you can look at them and say, think about this. You know, you believe in all this evolution. How in the world did all that order come to be? There must have been a God that put that order in place, right? You know, th th there must have been a God, you know. Chance doesn't produce order. It produces chaos, Right? You throw three balls out in the yard, they're not going to fall all in a line, right? You, you do something by chance, it comes out by chance. It's, it's chaos. You know, order had to come from something smart, intelligent. And so even if you don't believe in creation, even if you believe in evolution, you got to believe there was a God that put it in order, right? There was had to be some designer, that God who is in heaven so loved the world. He loved the world. And when he says the world there, he's not talking about the earth, the, the physical world. He, he loves his creation. But he's talking about people, you and me. Is our God so loved the world, every single person he's ever created, placed in those he so loved the world that he gave. Giving is a sign of love, isn't it? I mean, we're getting ready to, to ramp up for Christmas, right? And I'm going to buy my kids some Christmas gifts. I don't give my kids Christmas gifts because I feel obligated to. I give them Christmas gifts because I love them. 
I don't buy my wife a, a gift just because I, well, I guess I got to do this. It's just what I do. <laughs> you know, it's what we're supposed to do. No, we, we buy gifts because we love. And God did the same thing. He so loved the world that he gave. And what did he give? His one and only son, Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God. God in the flesh, who came to this earth, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death on a cross that he did not deserve, and rose from the grave after three days. That whoever would believe in Jesus, and by believe, I don't simply mean agree that he was there, but I mean put your faith and trust in him. That whoever would believe in Jesus, place your faith on him, that you would not perish. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That whoever would believe should not perish, but have eternal life with God in heaven. That's the gospel. That's one verse. Can you do that? Look at your neighbor and say, you can do that. Right now, do it. You can. Now look at your other neighbor and say, you too. You can do that too. You can share the gospel. You have a story. That story can point people to Jesus. That story ought to lead you into sharing the gospel. And lastly, let's talk about you in this. Sharing your story can remind yourself of God's grace. Sharing Jesus with others is good for you too. Because it reminds you of what God did in your life. When we tell other people about God's goodness to us, it reminds us in those dark days when we've forgotten about God's goodness that God is good and that He loves you and that He saved you. We're reminded that in His mercy and grace, God saved a wretch like me, like Amazing Grace says. Your story needs to be shared. Your one needs you. Would you pray with me? Father God, you've put a call on our life to reach the world with the gospel. You didn't create a plan B. You didn't make another way. You didn't write it in the clouds that Jesus is Lord. You didn't send the angels to be the evangelizers. You placed it on our shoulders as your children, as the church. And you called us that as we are going, we are to make disciples. That as we go through our lives... Rubbing shoulders, living life, sharing days and moments with people around us, we are to point them to Jesus with our story and with your story. And so, Father, right here, right now in this place, I'm asking that we as a church would feel that burden. We would accept the challenge. We would be obedient to the call. And we would seek to reach our one. That wherever we go, whoever we meet, we would seek to point them to Jesus. To tell them about the saving grace that only Jesus can offer. And the eternal life that can only be had through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, help us to see those opportunities today. And God, I'm praying that in this room today, if there is someone who is lost, someone who has never received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and maybe today as we quickly talk through John 3.16 maybe they realize they don't have a story to share because they've never been saved they've never received that forgiveness of sin that only Jesus offers and I pray that today would be their day of salvation that in the power of your Holy Spirit that you would nudge them out of the aisle 
and lead them to come down here so that we can talk together, so we can pray, so we can look through Scripture and help them to know that they know that they can have eternal life. Father, have your way with us and move in this time of invitation. And it's in Christ's name we do pray these things. Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing?